All right. So we are in a series called Replicate. And the whole idea behind the series is that we want not only to love God, but to replicate the love of God in others. Uh, we, we want them to learn how to love God. Uh, we want us to love people. But then we also want to have that as such a value in our, um, uh, in our community of faith that, that we're helping others know how to love people. And the same with make, a, make disciples and also make a difference. As I outlined the sermon today, it occurs to me that there, um, that there are people that are difficult to love. I'm listening to him right now. Now, we can probably even put those into categories. Uh, people who uh, uh, aren't like us yeah, sometimes, we find difficulty in loving. And most of the times that's on us because we have to overcome our own uh, prejudices and our own upbringings. And, and uh, at Dunwoody Baptist Church, I am so grateful that uh, when I stand in the lobby in, in, in both services, uh, increasingly there are people that don't look alike. And we are, as a community of faith, learning how to love each other uh, and to deal honestly with some of those, uh, uh, those differences. So uh, there, there are people that are different and, and, and that I'm called to love. There are people that are in the church that are easy to love. And God's called me to love them. As a matter of fact, the, the letter that uh, John wrote to the churches is probably more about us making sure we are learning to love each other inside the community of faith than it is loving those outside the community of faith. So I started thinking, okay, well, first of all, we, we love God. We talked about that last week. And in the Bible, it says, we love because he first loved us. First uh, John 4, 19, I believe. We love, we, we are privileged to love. We have the ability to love. We are uh, compelled to love, commanded to love, because God loved us first. Now, in my uh, morning Bible study time, I'm reading through the Bible again, and I'm in Jeremiah. And there's some really troubling passages in Jeremiah where God has, uh, is saying through the prophet, I'm done with these people. And at one point, God says to Jeremiah, don't even pray for them uh, to me. Don't, don't even bring them before me. I'm done with these people. And it's a terrifying thing for me to read that God in his steadfast love is withholding that love from people. And, of course, God uh, helps the prophet to understand that he's trying to get the attention of the people that he will never stop loving them. He, his, the word steadfast love. That, and that's what we talked about last week, that, that we love God in worship. Because God first loved us. Worship is not initiating anything. It is a response to something. 
We, we, as I said in the sermon, we, we don't have to be taught how to worship. We have to be reminded who to worship. And so in our uh, loving God, we love because he first loved us. And then loving people, that has the added dimension, okay? We're called to love people because God loved us first. We're called to love people who look like us and are in our church and are friendly to us and we get along with them. We are then called to love people who are not in our church. Uh, and I am totally amazed. Um, and I know that I shouldn't be, I've been ministry for 40 years, but when I read the scripture and in the old Testament, I read how much God says, a, a, a uh, bring in the foreigner, bring in the alien. Uh, and in Jeremiah, he even says those who uh, who formerly lift up their worship to the Baals, to the 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 Asherah, to the Ashroth, to the the pagan gods. If they will turn to me, let them in, bring them close. His love is big enough for them and he's he's asking us to love people that 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 we are uh, not necessarily uh, grew up around or in our neighborhood or or people who uh, don't necessarily look like us he's he's saying I have I have brought the the immigrant and the foreigner and the alien and I, I've brought them near and by extension he would say to Dunwoody Baptist Church hey you're you're a community church, but you're growing to a regional church. You're you're growing to a place where people come from apartments and houses and high rises and condos and uh, all kinds of living arrangements. They uh, they have a lot of, of baggage. They have a lot of sin in their lives. How are you going to love them? But then the the hardest part, and we'll get to that last tonight. The the hardest part is that he tells us we have to love those who don't love us, who don't even like us. And if we are perfectly honest, we're called to love people we don't like. And I, I kind of think God is not totally offended with the fact that I don't like some people. <laughs> I think God just knows how human I am. That there are uh, some people, um, one, uh, one writer uh, said it this way, and I, I really liked what they uh, had to say. They say, that's that guy that doesn't really like to ride bicycles, but he gets on a bicycle so he can ride down the middle of the street and make everybody slow down around him. He's the guy that puts gum under the table. He's the... The, the guy that has this conversation with half-chewed food in his mouth. He's, he's the guy that we just don't like. We wouldn't call him and say, let's go hang out together. But we are called to love. Now, uncomfortably for Sunday, but necessarily, we also have to talk about the climate that we are in today and how much this call to love is going to make a difference in our culture. 
We have a culture where when we disagree with somebody, if we follow the norms of the culture today, we don't just disagree with them. In order to fully disagree with them, now we have to dislike them. We, we can't just have a conversation across the table with somebody that doesn't have the same viewpoints, the same political uh, leanings that we have, the, the same beliefs about church, the same beliefs about God, the same beliefs about uh, justice, the same beliefs about politics, the same beliefs about what ought to be offered in school and what ought not to be offered in school. We, we, we have people that uh, would say to us that uh, uh, just because I don't uh, uh, like the way that our genders are assigned at birth, I'm just going to choose a different one and, uh, and you're going to have to like me because of it. And I, I struggle. And I think we all struggle, but at the end of the day, God calls us to love. Love makes the difference. And if I can have a conversation with somebody who tells me that they identify as a gender that's different from the one that they were born with biologically, if I can have that conversation with them across the table and genuinely love that person, then I am loving because God first loved me. I'm not loving out of human emotion. I'm not loving out of what makes sense. Uh, if, if grace made sense, we'd all go to hell because God loves us to the point that his love is scandalous. He, he loves me in spite of my sin. And so what we want to get at this Sunday is an examination of some of the scripture passages where God calls us to love scandalously, to love against the norm of the culture, to love against all odds, to love the people that love us, to love the people that don't love us, the, to love the people that oppose us. So let's start with uh, 1 John. 1 John. Um, I... Anybody know a little bit of the detail work behind First John in terms of who it was written to and for and from and by? It was written by John. Uh, he's not mentioned there. He doesn't really mention his own name. He doesn't give his byline to any of the things that he wrote. But I am convinced, and not everybody agrees, but I am convinced that the John who wrote the letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, is the same apostle who wrote the Gospel of John, and who's also the same one who wrote the Revelation. And so the collection of writing that we have from the Apostle John the disciple whom Jesus loved is the way he refers to himself. He never mentions his name in any of his writings. But we believe that he wrote the Gospel of John and then the letters to first, uh, the first letter, the second letter, third letter of John, and then also Revelation. Who knows anything about the end of John's life? Was in was in prison. Go ahead and unmute and let me 
Let me hear from you. What do we know about the end of his life? I thought Mary was with John. The At the cross, certainly. And he was stranded on Patmos, wasn't he? He was exiled to Patmos. Uh, Patmos is a little island in the Mediterranean. Uh, when we uh, went to Greece, we visited the Isle of Patmos and saw the cave where uh, John uh, wrote as he was exiled. But a lot of people believe that he died on Patmos. I do not believe that to be true. I think that his exile was ended. Um, Nero, who uh, executed both Peter and Paul, uh, he was long dead by the time that uh, John's exile was uh, ended. And so the fact that he was exiled probably saved his life. And um, he was tortured a number of times. Um, the, the history suggests that he was boiled in oil. Uh, he, he had all kinds of horrible things happen, but he is the disciple who lived the longest. He's the only disciple that did not have a martyr's death. So John is... We think he lived until he was probably 90. Um, he wrote most of the things that he wrote are, are after everybody else. So the Gospel of John is later than uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's later than Acts. It's, uh, it's probably pushing on into... Um, 70 or 80 AD, and then the letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Revelation were probably written closer to 90 AD, almost to the turn of the century. Most modern scholars believe that when John uh, was pardoned or when his exile at Patmos ended, he went to Ephesus uh, which, Nicoa, is where we believe that Mary, Jesus's mother, was. So if Jesus died in 33 AD, Paul died in 68 AD. So Mary was quite old by the time she was in Ephesus, and she probably died there in John's care. So when John and Mary on the cross were told to take care of each other, most scholars believe that they both ended up in Ephesus, and that's where both of them died. So There's Mary no, was never in Patmos. No, uh, the, he was in Patmos. He, he was exiled to Patmos, and most people believe that he wrote a lot of the revelation in uh, Patmos. No, John was there, but Mary, was Mary ever in Patmos? No. Uh, probably not. Okay. Uh, she probably was in Ephesus, likely under the care of Timothy. Okay. Um, Timothy would have been the pastor at the church at Ephesus once Paul planted the church, encouraged the church. He would have entrusted the pastorate of that church to somebody he trusted a whole lot, and that was likely Timothy. 
So that means that First John was written to the churches that were scattered, but it was probably written from Ephesus. Does that make sense? So, yes. so John probably had an apartment or a or lodging there in Ephesus, and that's when he wrote First John, which makes a lot of sense. Now, I don't want to get controversial with anybody, uh, but I probably will before we're done. First uh, John begins um, with a greeting. Uh, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That sounds a whole lot like the beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so John kind of begins his letter with a, a, a prologue in the same way that he began uh, the Gospel of John. Now, the, the letter is, is written with a number of purposes. Um, in the Gospel of John, the emphasis is on salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Well, the emphasis is on, on all three of these letters is on sanctification. How do we live as disciples? So right away, we, we understand that he's not really addressing this letter to people who do not believe in Jesus. He's addressing this letter to people who were in the church at uh, uh, not necessarily Ephesus, but the, the, the things that he wrote, if you start reading between the lines, the things that he wrote are extremely influenced by the culture in Ephesus. So even though he wasn't writing to the Ephesians, Paul did that in his letter to the Ephesians. That is addressed to these people. But John was unquestionably influenced by the culture at the time. Now, if you've been to Ephesus, you know that it is an odd location to be so important in biblical discussions. It's not in Palestine. It's not in Greece. It's on the west coast of modern-day Turkey. So if you draw a line directly across the Aegean Sea from west to east from Athens, you'll, you'll end up at Ephesus on the other side of the water. And so it's on the Asia Minor mainland, but on the Mediterranean or the Aegean coast, um, in what we call today Turkey. So the Byzantine Empire influence was there. But at the time that John wrote, the influence was Greek and Roman. There was a temple in Ephesus, which uh, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. When we go there to visit Ephesus, we are awed by the library and the Colosseum. The library is a 
a building that's relatively intact. Oh, and Gary, we're also awed by the public latrines uh, that are there in Ephesus as well. Everybody has to sit on one and get their picture taken, but I'll let you uh, look at your travel photos from all of your friends. But the library is relatively intact and it's stunning. If you Google the library at Ephesus, it is a remarkable uh, building that is very, very well preserved. But also very well preserved is the Colosseum. And the Colosseum at Ephesus, uh, have any of you ever been to a Hawks game at uh, what used to be Phillips Arena? The Colosseum at Ephesus held as many people as that arena does. So we're talking 25,000 people were able to get into this Colosseum for concerts and plays and speeches and, and whatever else. And, and that kind of tells us that there were probably close to half a million people who lived in the area of Ephesus. Now, when you think of half a million people in the first century, um, it, it's, it's absolutely stunning how packed these people were in a relatively small area. Had to stay close to the water. And uh, by the way, the city of Ephesus was much closer to the water. Uh, the ocean has receded some and uh, sediment has filled in, and uh, they are digging out the old Ephesian harbor, and when they get through with it, it's going to be absolutely uh, stunning to see uh, in your mind's eye what it was like in Ephesus in the first century. But I tell you all that because the major, major attraction in uh, Ephesus was not the Colosseum, not the library, and not the public latrines, but the temple of Artemis. So the, the temple that was there in, um, in Ephesus was absolutely stunning. It was actually much larger than the Parthenon in Athens. And, and this was a, an incredibly magnificent temple. The people in Ephesus believe that God dropped out of the sky uh, a god for the city of Ephesus. And uh, most scholars think that a meteorite uh, fell and that they, of course, when something falls out of the sky in uh, superstitious times, they would worship it. And so when uh, Paul disrupts the silver making of the idols, it is thought that what was being made out of silver was a representation of whatever it was that fell out of the sky. So Artemis was the goddess of fertility. She was the goddess of um, uh, sexuality. She was the goddess of procreation. So the, the, the temple was staffed entirely by women. So in, if it gives you a little bit of context, when Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy uh, 2.12, and it says, I do not permit a woman to, have, to teach or have authority over a man, 
I believe that he was referring to the abusive authority of the women who were in the temple at Ephesus, because Timothy was in Ephesus when Paul wrote these things to him. I don't believe for a minute that he was telling us that women don't have a voice in church, because obviously they do. They, they have a lot to say. And what Paul was saying to Timothy was, we don't believe in the abuse of authority like we see in Ephesus, like we see at that temple where uh, women are uh, abusive in their power. They are abusive in their exercise of that power. And so uh, that, that's sort of where I believe that command uh, comes from, but uh, I, I'm chasing rabbits. What First John is about is a reaction to the culture and a call for Christians to learn how to love in that culture. So the culture of Ephesus and the culture of Dunwoody, Ephesus in the first century, Dunwoody in the 21st century, there were lots of ethnicities, lots of languages, lots of traditions, lots of religions. There were sports. There was entertainment. There was debauchery. There was way too much alcohol consumed. There was um, uh, prejudice on the basis of ethnicity. There was... Um, uh, uh, hate on the basis of where you were from or, or how much, uh, what social class you were in. And so uh, where John is addressing, he was saying the same thing that I will say on Sunday morning, church, there is a better way and it is a way of love. So when John is writing, he, he wants to make sure that we understand that in the gospel of John, he was telling us how to be saved in the letters that he wrote. He's telling us how to live as people who are saved. How do you live as the body of Christ? How do you live as people who are uh, under the uh, covenant relationship that was made possible when Jesus died on the cross? So, Jumping to our particular scripture for the week, he's telling us about the, the test of obedience, and that's what chapter one is about. In chapter two, he gets to the test of love, and he touches on the theme of love in chapter two, chapter three, and chapter four, and it's almost like it's this, it's this major thing that's that's just an itch that needs to be scratched and he'll talk about love then he'll go off on some other tangent then he'll talk about love then he'll go off on some tangent and so in chapter 2 verse 7 he says beloved and he does that a lot when he when he when he talks about love he usually says uh beloved he usually introduces his his topic with an affectionate reference to the people there. So he says, beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment. At the same time, it is a new commandment. And he's talking about being in the light 
and letting all things be in the light. And in verse 15 in chapter 2, he says, don't love the world or the things in the world. That's what we talked about last week in terms of loving God and, and letting our hobbies and our, our, uh, uh, our affections be prioritized by our love for God. And then in uh, chapter 3, he begins by saying, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we would be called the children of God. And so he's building on the gospel of John. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him would be saved. John 3, 16 and 17. So here he says, the kind of love that the father has given us is that we are called children of God. Now, maybe he was thinking about that great big temple in Ephesus. When the people said, we are children of, of Artemis. We are the children of the gods. We are the children of, we are the children of, he says, no, 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 no. You're children of God with a big G. You're children of the everlasting God, the God he described in chapter one and chapter two. Uh, chapter two, verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. You are children of God. You know, no one. The reason why the world doesn't know this is that they don't know God. And that's what we were talking about last Sunday was that that our world is in darkness because they don't know God. They don't know God, so they become people that are hard to love. They have ideas that are that are impossible for us to embrace. So in verse uh, two of chapter three, he says, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. We're, we're in progress. We're learning how to be sanctified. The word sanctified is, uh, uh, is, is what John's ministry is all about. It's discipleship. It's, it's learning how to be um, the one that loves God and helps others love God, that loves people and helps others love people, that makes disciples and helps others make disciples, that makes a difference and brings other people into making a difference. So the, the sanctification is us becoming more like Christ in our daily life. Um, won't go into it tonight, but in theology, we say there's uh, salvation, uh, there's sanctification, and there's glorification. Glorification is when we uh, are brought into God's presence, and finally, we are made all that he is uh, wanting us to be. Sanctification is the journey that we're on along the way. So then he gets to the point in chapter 3, verse 11, he says, so this shouldn't surprise you. This is the message that you've heard from the very beginning. Love one another. Love one another. And when somebody says, hey, when, when they drive by Dunwoody Baptist Church, 
I, I want them to say, I don't know what goes on in there, but those people love each other. All I know is that, that they, they say church ends somewhere around noon, but those people don't leave till almost two o'clock in the afternoon. They get there early. They fellowship often. They eat together. They pray together. Uh, there, there's Gerald McCarley's got a men's class, and they love their, their folks well. Samaritan class, they love their folks well. The foundations class, the, the young uh, parents, they are loving each other well. Excuse me for just a second. <coughs> okay. So they're loving each other well. That's what we want to see. And he says, You're not, you shouldn't be like Cain, who the evil one murdered his own brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's were righteous. That's a fancy way of saying what, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. When we are honest enough to say, I don't love that person. I don't love them. The reason is universally the same. It's because you have declared that you love yourself more. It's because you've declared that you love yourself more than God. You love yourself more than others. You love yourself more than what's right. When God says through John here, the contrast between the two brothers, Cain and Abel, Cain killed his brother because he was prideful. And whenever we find ourselves unable to love, if we're perfectly honest with ourselves, Pride is at the root. Our, our self-love is at the root. We're afraid of somebody taking away our stuff. We're afraid of somebody becoming more important than us. We're offended when somebody shouts louder than us or, or when somebody... Now, we, we should be offended when somebody hurts uh, the people we love. Uh, we, we, we're, we're not talking about uh, love that, that is absolutely blind. You know, you, you, you mess with my church people, I, I'm going to have a little bit of righteous anger. Now, I, I'm going to battle to love because I know that at the root of not being able to love is always pride. So he says, we have passed out of death into life, verse 14. And then he says, whoever does not love abides in death. You could almost go through 1 John and circle the amount of times that he says, whoever does not love. And, and it's like he's helping us learn how to love by pointing out some contrasts that sound really scary to me. It's almost like the, the prayer Jeremiah was uh, or the, the word he was given from God. Don't even pray for these people. So when he says here, you have passed out of death to life, that's our, our image of baptism. You, you, are, you are dead to self. You are alive to Christ. You have passed from darkness to light, from death to life. But now John says, but if you can't love, you're still dead. You've not allowed the love of Christ to touch you. And I, it's a terrifying thought. Because it confronts every one of my prejudices, every one of my uh, bigoted 
statements that I've ever made in my life, every one of my self-righteous proclamations, it gets right into the heart of that when he says, if you do not love, whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, just like Cain. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this, we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Mm. Now, again, go ahead. I said heavy. It is heavy. It's, it's absolutely heavy because it, it doesn't allow us. And, and thank you for that segue. It's an incredible uh, opportunity for me to step through it allows us not to make God into our own image. Well, God, you understand why I can't love this person. You understand why I can't love this person. That person's a Samaritan. That person's unclean. That person's got leprosy. That person doesn't smell very good. That person votes for a different party than I vote for. That person wants to take away my stuff. And he reminds us, Jesus laid down his life. Now, here's the segue that you allowed me, and I appreciate it because I would have run out of time. The prevailing philosophy that was creeping into the first century church in Ephesus was a philosophy called Gnosticism, G N O. S-T-I-C-I-S-M, Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And the short version is that there were people who said, I know better than you, so I'm better than you. I know more than you, so I am in line in front of you in the heavenly Jacob's ladder, whatever escalator is taking us all to heaven, I'm ahead of you. I'm better than you. I know more than you. I do better than you. I follow the rules better than you. And so John was writing out of a philosophy that said when pride gets in the way, it prevents love. And when love is prevented, I don't even know you. That that God says, I don't even know you. Because the supreme test of your discipleship is not how much you know or how many rules you can keep. It's the simple question, do you love? And so he goes on to say, verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So he talks about some other things. And then in chapter four, he comes right back to it. He talks about testing the spirits and that's connected. Verse uh, four, greater is he who is in you who is in the world that than he who is in the world. The, the devil who occupies the temple in, in Ephesus, he's not greater. The gods that are made by the silversmiths there are not greater. The 
the carved images that are represented in all the churches that he's sending this letter to are not greater. Greater is he who is in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory, as Paul said it. He's greater. And then he gets right back to what in verse 7? Love. Beloved, let us love one another. And he's talking about inside the church. Now, I'm going to make sure I save five minutes to, to talk about what I'm going to talk about a lot on Sunday. But John is talking about loving each other in the church. And it is deeply disturbing to me that this was such a problem. It, it breaks my heart to think that there would be dissension inside Dunwoody Baptist Church, that someone would be made to feel small because they didn't think they knew enough or they didn't think they were uh, faithful enough or didn't volunteer enough or didn't. It, it would break my heart to think that there was dissension in our church over someone who looked different, somebody who smelled different, somebody who ate different foods. But apparently something was going on in the churches that John felt like he had to remind them, you got to love each other. That's what the world is watching. The world, the world doesn't really care uh, when we send people to the other side of the globe. The, the world cares if they can find love at the corner of Ashford, Dunwoody, and Mount Vernon. So he says, beloved, love one another. Love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love doesn't even know God. There he goes again. Whoever doesn't love is dead. Whoever doesn't love doesn't know God because God is love. And so he goes on for a while. In this, this, what is this? In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. What is this? That God sent his only son into the world. What does that sound like? John 3.16. This, in this, the love of God was made known. That God sent his only son into the world. That we might live through him. And if we love we live if we don't love back in chapter three uh, and verse uh, 14. He said, whoever does not love abides in death. So he's setting up the contrast here. So he said, and this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the substitute. That word propitiation is is a, a word that means that. The lamb died in our place. It was an acceptable sacrifice. So he died to be the propitiation for our sins. So if God loved us that much, it's, it's all we can do to love each other. It's a response that we've got to have. And this Sunday, I'll do a, a new members class, Explorer. And almost universally, the people who are in there will say, I am drawn to this place because somebody loved me. Somebody brought me in. Somebody helped me. Somebody showed kindness. So he says in verse 10, in this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent Jesus. Verse 12, 
no one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, they see him in us. My paraphrase. If we love, they see God. There's an old story of a little boy who was helped by somebody. And I I picture some of the women in our church that are so kind in missions and in in helping at funerals and weddings and whatnot. But this little boy was profoundly impacted by this woman. And she kept talking about God. And finally he stopped her and he asked her, are you God's wife? <laughs> oh, good. It's, we see love. We see God. Now, where did John goes on to uh, uh, examine further. If you go over to verse 16 in chapter four, he says, God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. This love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Why? Because we are there not on the basis of our good looks our monetary gains, our service, our contribution, our family lineage, our ethnicity, our nationality, none of that matters. All that matters in heaven is that God says he loves me enough to let me in. It says by this is love perfected. We can have confidence. Verse 18, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Now, the immediate topic there is judgment. We do not have to fear judgment because God loves us. But the extrapolation is not uh, an unfair one to say that love does cast out fear. If, if I love my wife as deeply as I hope you know that I love my wife, I am not afraid that she's going to leave me. I'm not afraid that she's going to hurt me. And when we relate to people, John is writing to the people in the church. I ought to be able to look around in the room on Sunday morning and go, these people love me. They won't hurt me. They won't uh, uh, talk uh, bad about me. They will uh, confront me in love if, uh, if I have hurt someone else or if I have bad breath or if my socks don't match, they are going to uh, help me in love because there's no fear in love. I don't I don't fear the relationship. I, I, I told the staff on Tuesday, I, I am overwhelmed with how much love there is across our staff. The, we'll look around the room, John, Jeff, Robert, um, Alan, Brian, Bridget, there is so much love in terms of we got each other's back. And so there's no fear there, right? There's no fear that anybody's going behind anybody's back. So he says, verse 20, he gets back to the whoever. So if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. So far, we've been told that anyone who doesn't love is dead Anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God. Now he says anyone who doesn't know, uh, who doesn't love, but they say I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ, I love God, 
you can call them out. They're not telling the truth. Because if you can't love others, you can't love God. We love because God first loved us. And so he ends the passage with the commandment, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You know, as hard as all of that is to hear, I don't think it was as hard to hear as what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. When he said, you have heard it said, love those who love you. But I say to you, love your enemies. Love those who persecute you. Love those who say bad things about you, who who don't play by any rules of civility. I'm telling you to love those people. And I am... I'm not through exploring what all that means for Sunday morning, but... I get John saying, love each other. I I get him saying, your genuine love for God is demonstrated in your genuine love for each other. But John had heard Jesus say these words. You've heard it said, love your neighbor. Love God, love people. It comes from the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you've heard that all your life. Love your neighbor. But I'm telling you to love your enemy. I'm telling you to love that person who says vile things about you in the community. I'm telling you. I'm telling you to love that person who. Uh goes on camera and says all kinds of things about you. And the last of the Beatitudes, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of things evil about you. And in Matthew chapter five, verse 48, he says, you've got to love that person. And that's where my challenge really, really rests because our culture is a mess. I mean, I, I, I keep thinking there's not going to be another crazy thing in the news cycle. And every time we do, there's something crazier that happens. And it feels like the world is getting farther and farther away from love for God. And, and, and I, I, I want them to see love. I, I want... I want to be able to sit across the table from somebody who's gay. I want to be able to share a cup of coffee with somebody who was born a male, but says they identify as a female. I want to sit across the the table from a serial murderer and be able to say to them, please look into my eyes. I struggle with every ounce of my being to love you, but in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of God, who created this earth, who sent his only son to redeem this earth, I love you. That is a powerful, powerful thing. And that's what we're calling the church to do on Sunday. So, part one, part two is Sunday. <laughs> Any questions or comments before we, we go? No questions. Go ahead. Um, 
it says here, you know, we're talking about love, and I, I do understand that we are to love each other. But in the passage we were just reading, um, it says twice that um, we're liars if we don't love our Christian brothers and sisters. Right. So why is it pointing out in these passages that it's our Christian brothers and sisters? I know we're not supposed to judge others, but we are supposed to judge our Christian brothers and sisters. So as that... Well, I, I think that part of, part of that is John's purpose is to um, is to speak into maturing disciples and his his interest with the churches he wrote to was both the growth of an individual disciple as well as the growth of the church that our our testimony would be protected and so John's primary purpose was to say to the churches you guys have to get out on a good foundation you have to set the course of your fellowship in love or you're not going to make a difference in the world. Jesus looked way ahead of that in the Sermon on the Mount when he said there will be a time when as a church who has learned to love each other, there will be a time you've got to extend that love even to those who despise you. And, and so I, I have to put these two passages together because John was talking to disciples. He was talking to the church. But Jesus made sure that we understood that what John said about loving each other inside the church also applied for us to be able to learn to love those who are outside of the church, outside of the faith, that if we can't learn to love them, we're, we're not telling the truth. If we can't learn to love them, we haven't understood Christ's death on the cross for our sins. It's a lot to think about, church. It's a lot to think about, but the scripture is powerful. And when we just choose the verses that make us feel good, um, we haven't understood it. We, we really haven't dug into the whole counsel of God. So uh, this Sunday, I'll talk a lot about what a mess the culture is. But where I'm going at the end of it is that regardless of what a mess it is, we've got to love. We've got well, to I, learn to love. I have a question. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you have an enemy here, you know, and you, I mean, you love them because that's, you know, you, you do. But what's the difference between associating and trying to, to change their thought process, you know, it, I mean, how it's, you know, um, when you have to hang out with them, you know, when you have to, you know, yeah, Greg, to thank you for that. And by the way, we've been praying for you with your mom. Um, what I used to tell students, you know, when they, they all wanted to know if they could date non-Christians and they said the Bible, to, you know, I, I've got to be around non-Christians so I can witness to them. And I would always ask them one question that I think maybe is, is relevant here. In a relationship, are we the influencer or the influenced? And we have to be really, really honest with ourselves at that point. If we are 
in a relationship with somebody who's so overpowering in their personality that we find ourselves starting to doubt the things that we believe in the very core of our being, we've got to evaluate whether we need to be in that relationship. If we find that God is in his Holy Spirit, as Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to me. If we see them being drawn to the person of Christ, we know that we're on the right track. But if we are, if we find ourselves being drawn away from our core beliefs, if we find ourselves thinking more like they think than like them thinking like we think, then we are the influenced and not the influencer and probably don't need to be in that relationship. I got a question. Hey, Traylon. Hey. Um, something that, that I struggle with understanding the difference between not liking so, for example, the lifestyle that I came from, I'll be around other people who will assume that that is my lifestyle as well. And it kind of it, it bothers me like. That it, it's just something that bothers me, it's not like them, but it bothers me and I don't know what the difference is between, OK, I don't want to be around something or a certain. Uh, way of life, but. I don't, I don't know what the difference is for that. Well, you, you uh, obviously you have some uh, relationships, some friendships that uh, God has uh, let you stay in those relationships for a reason. And my guess is that when you start talking about how in love with Jesus you are, there are going to be some that don't want to hang around you anymore and the problem is going to take care of itself. <laughs> um. Because when we, when we start reflecting the love of Jesus and when we start realizing the difference in our, in our whole heart space when we're around people that love Jesus as well, when we are talking about those things, and again, we're the influencer. We are, we are directing the conversation. We're not letting it go to gossip. We're not letting it go to drugs. We're not letting it go to sexuality. We want the conversation to go to Jesus. And either they're going to start bending their heart toward Christ or they're going to select, they're going to uncheck the box that lets you be around them. And, uh, and I, I'm okay with that because God is going to provide for us. I, I, I really believe, and somebody, uh, I, I didn't see who it was in the room, asked about uh, loving people outside the church. I wonder if that's why John is so insistent that we love each other inside the church so that we have a landing place when we get beat up by the world. So that we have a place where we know we are loved. We know that that we are accepted. We know that we are are uh, that we have a shoulder to cry on. We know that people love us in that space because when we venture out of that space and somebody in the world persecutes us then we have a space to return to where we know we can heal a little bit because of the love that's there i wonder if that's part of john's message if you're going to be a church that has influence you, you you solid 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 the love for each other and then when you venture out you got a place to land where you know you're loved i, I wonder if that's part of it
I have a question. Where would you consider the line to be between loving and acceptance? Where uh, affirmation, where you affirm someone's lifestyle? Great question. Um, I, I think we obey the Holy Spirit that never lets us agree with a lifestyle that is not biblical. Uh, we, we have to choose to love a person. Uh, and I don't, I don't like the cliche, love the sinner, hate the sin. But that's, that's really what we're talking about. That in conversations, if they're looking for you to, that acceptance is the only way they will feel your love, they're not going to feel your love. Because acceptance cannot be there. There, there cannot be uh, a compromise of purity when it comes to something that we have prayed about. We have searched the scripture. We've sought wise counsel from friends. It's not just an opinion or a bumper sticker. It's something that we have a deep biblical conviction that this cannot be. And when that is the case, there will be an opportunity to love a person in such a way that you don't compromise the, the core beliefs that are biblical. And I don't think the Holy Spirit's going to let you alone. You're, you're, you know, well, if we, if we only embezzle a little bit from the company, it's not that bad, right? The Holy Spirit is not going to let you alone with that. He's not going to let you have, you know, my, my mantra around here, all things in the light. There have been some times that's been really uncomfortable for me, but the Holy Spirit has not allowed me to back away from things being in the light. Um, and, and I think the Holy Spirit does that in relationships when we feel like we are being pressured to accept a lifestyle that is simply not biblical. Well, and, you know, so many young people grow up with this with parents who are not believers. Well, if you're such a, a big Christian, you do this. If you are such a hotshot Christian, you do that. And then we let non-believers define the narrative of what it is to be a believer. And that's what John is saying. This can't be. We have to be distinctively different in the way we love and in the way we prophesy when it comes to a, a cultural issue that we just cannot abide in terms of our faith. Would you agree that maybe sometimes the most loving thing you can do is risk being offensive if you give a message in love i absolutely believe that um taylor in the situation you were talking about it wouldn't surprise me one bit if there's somebody else in that circle that's looking for a cue to stand up you know for for somebody not to embrace the lifestyle somebody to say I'm not comfortable with this. It's not the right thing. Uh, I believe that God's called me to something else. I bet there's always somebody else that's looking for somebody who will stand up in order to have the courage to stand up themselves. And I, and I, I believe that with all my heart. I've seen it over and over again. So, Gary, yeah, that we, we, we need to pray for the courage to, uh, to confront in love, speak the truth in love just as much as we need to pray for the courage to love each other. All right, folks. I love being back.
We'll see you guys next Wednesday night when we talk about uh, making disciples. And I hope I'll see all of you on Sunday.